Good morning and good afternoon. This is Michael Collins, Family Financial Education Specialist with uh, Unity Extension. And on the line with me is Judy Bartfeldt, who's a Food Security Policy Specialist at Unity Extension. We're going to be going through today's lunchtime learning topic around food insecurity and family finances and talking about some data that has been collected in partnership with many of you. So this is an unusual uh, lunchtime learning in that some people on the call were actually part of this research and can uh, talk about how it's affected them and their work. Um, but that data is um, something that has been sort of an ongoing project for about the last year or so. Um, so uh, we hope today that we'll both learn a little bit about the issues of food insecurity and how that intersects with family finances, since this is a family financial education team's call. Um, but also think about this as a model for uh, ways that specialists and county-based educators can work together on projects that both has research and application. Um, but before I go into today's topic, I want to refresh everyone's memory about the Lunchtime Learning Series and how this works. We um, generally have these calls on the third Monday of the month, this month where you pushed it back one week due to some other commitments. Um, but we will take on a topic of relevance for financial educators across the state. And these topics were identified by the Family Financial Security Team last year. And um, each month we will tackle one of these. Um, our topic today is summarized in a brief, and that brief is located on the website fyi.uwex.edu slash financial series. And there you'll see a link with each topic for each uh, month's call, and then there's a link to something called an issue brief. Today's issue brief is called Food Insecurity and Family Finances, Evidence from Wisconsin School Children. If you click on that, it'll bring up a, a PDF file, um, which you can uh, look at, you can print, um, but most importantly, that's sort of what we'll go through today. So that'll be the, the uh, presentation materials for today. Um, we'll, I, I will present this for about the next 20 minutes or so. Um, I welcome questions and comments, including from Judy, if there's something I misstate or if she wants to clarify. Uh, but then we'll both be available for the remainder of the call for your questions, your comments, and just a general discussion about how you can use these kinds of data in your work, how it might affect your financial education programming, and also your programming in other areas of family and community issues, whether that's related to food, legislative finances or the intersections of the two. What's I think really interesting about this project is that it does bridge a couple of different issue areas and uh, also different environments, being schools and extension and uh, intersections with finance. Uh, so there's lots of, of rich uh, detail we can think about as we discuss the topic for the day. Um, before I go in, again, before I go in too far, I want to remind people that we will have another call in November, that is still planned for November 17th, which would be the third um, third Monday of November, and we're going to talk about student loans, which is obviously a hot topic today. I'll remind you about that again um, towards the end of the call, uh, but I also want to make that plug. Um, finally, just logistically, if you're if you have a question, um, feel free to raise it. If you're not asking a question, just go ahead and mute it because we do record these calls, so that these are um, put into um, an MP3 format and then posted on the uh, Family Living website. So uh, if you're not uh, actively part of the conversation, mute it, and then when you're uh, happy to unmute at any time and, and join back in the conversation uh, just to make the recording as clear as possible. 
Um, so with that, I will pause if anybody has any questions. All right. Um, so I'm going to now go through the, um, the sort of yellow-colored brief. It's brief 2014-10 um, called Food Insecurity and Family Finances Evidence from Wisconsin School Children. And again, this is all data that was collected uh, through a partnership that Judy Bartfeld organized. And um, many of you were part of this work. So you were working with schools or in other ways uh, connected to the collection of these data and to the uh, to the parents and communities where these data were collected from. So uh, I'm sort of summarizing what I see here, but you may see other patterns or want to have other things that you want to raise um, because of your involvement with this. Um, I want to start at a very high level, too, which is that there are um, lots of studies and lots of researchers and lots of practitioners who think and uh, work on issues of food insecurity. And meanwhile, there are a probably similarly large number of experts and educators and researchers that focus on financial insecurity. It's remarkable how little those two worlds intersect. It's not as if um, there are um, large bodies of research that look at the intersection of food insecurity and financial insecurity. In fact, most surveys and most research out there don't even ask questions. If they're a food-oriented uh, research project or program, they don't ask much about science other than maybe qualifying for particular programs and services. Meanwhile, on the financial side, we, we'll focus a lot on financial knowledge or financial behavior, but it looks very little at issues of food insecurity or, or hardship related to uh, food nutrition. So it's a, uh, two relatively robust areas of, of practice and study that actually have quite a, a lot of overlap, I'm about to argue, through <laughs> the data we see here. Um, and perhaps that suggests there's lots of opportunities for future work, um, both on the research side and on the practice side of integrating more how programs and education might be focused to sort of dually address financial insecurity and food insecurity. Um, some of this is probably kind of obvious. I mean, if you work a lot with low-income families, you know that they don't just come in saying they have problems paying their bills. They have a problem with all kinds of things. It's housing, it's food, it's um, sort of a wide range of issues. And um, it's probably no surprise that people who have issues paying bills also have issues uh, providing food or uh, otherwise indicate that they have some food insecurity. Um, but the extent of this really hasn't been well documented, and it's also true that there are families who struggle in some areas but not in others. So they might struggle around food insecurity but not struggle in areas of finance, or they might struggle in areas of finance but not food security. So it's, it's not a one-for-one -one relationship, uh, but it is a strong relationship. And um, in part what this study does is help put a little more precision around what that relationship looks like, even though that if you work a lot with low-income families, you know that they struggle in multiple ways all at once. Um, the key thing, I think, from a um, perspective of a financial education and, and looking at financial security is that there's probably hardly, other than maybe being homeless, there's hardly a uh, tougher hardship that a family can face as a result of a financial shock than not having enough food to eat, and particularly when you talk about families with young children. Uh, so from a perspective of a financial educator and you're worried about not just whether somebody's paying, you know, high fees for for some financial service or whether they're not paying their bills on time and incurring some kind of cost. This is a much more direct impact on well being, the fact that um, 
kids may not have access to food, and that poor nutrition might result in them going to school not ready to learn and starting to fall behind at school. I mean, it's a, a much, uh, much broader set of issues that families and children will be confronting when they don't have uh, proper food and nutrition than maybe they would be feeling if they just had late payment fees on the real. Uh, so when we talk about budgeting and we talk about financial education, we obviously worry about being able to make ends meet and making sure that families can live within their means. But the issue of families specifically not having enough food to eat might have even bigger impacts than um, the kinds of things we might typically look at when we look at budgets around um, families. And especially the stress of, you know, paying bills is hard, the stress of keeping a roof over your head is hard, but combine that with being hungry or um, not having adequate nutrition resources, particularly for children, um, is going to make the level of stress and, uh, much higher and the level of well-being among that family that much lower. Um, I mean, obviously, the other thing we see is that this is partly an issue of poverty. It's an issue of lack of wealth and of income, but not, not entirely. I mean, there are um, lower-income families, lower-wealth families who are able to avoid hardships in food security, related to, to food and food security. There are also families who have relatively higher incomes and more wealth who struggle with issues of food security. Some of this has to do with the fact that it's not just the levels of wealth or income that families have, but the timing of it. And so while a family may be overall fine over the course of a the year, there are points in time in the year when because of the, uh, you know, the business cycle or because of the weather or some other factor, um, their income and expenses don't match up, and so they may have time periods when they struggle more. Um, and so part of the, the um, task of a financial educator is to help identify those periods and come up with plans. How, do, how will you meet your food security needs when um, times are more difficult, and how will you uh, be able to maybe save up or figure out other mechanisms to be prepared uh, so that those, those shocks, those down periods when they happen aren't as as uh, difficult to manage as they would otherwise. Um, there have been studies, and I think just a little bit of the, the prior studies uh, in the brief, as to which types of families tend to have uh, more issues of food insecurity, and it's, it's obviously income, and um, all the things that are correlated with income, like being disabled or being a single parent, or uh, level of education, um, and other factors in the neighborhood, the racial makeup of neighborhoods and families. All these things are are predictors of, of income, wealth, and of food insecurity. Um, but a negative financial shock is one as well. So things like lacking income or being unemployed, um, well, those can be key things. There's some research that suggests not having any any savings or any, any sort of cushion um, in the case of a drop in income or a, a jump in expenses, when that can be a problem. I think I've talked in the past in some of these calls about the Financial Diaries Project out of New York University, and there's a, a link actually on the one-time learning website and in the brief to some of that work that's been done. But it, they basically tracked families at a, a bi-weekly level, so every other week they were talking to families about their both money coming in and money coming out. And they just documented, in a, in a relatively small number of families, but they documented that there are these time periods when families really are stretched thin. Their income is way down, their expenses are way up. And something has to give. If they can't access savings or borrowing, they end up cutting back. And one of the things they cut back on is, is food. Um, so it's, you know, it's part of the way that families deal with 
this volatility of their income and volatility of their expenses is to, to not spend money on certain things. And one of the things that's easy to do is food because it's uh, perishable, so you, you tend not to have a huge stockpile of it. And when you don't have any money, you just don't buy more. And so it tends to be one of those things that is the sort of whipping boy or the, you know, the, the slack point in a budget that uh, people will try to deal with as they deal with uh, cash flow problems. Um, so that's that's the bigger issue. I want to focus now on these data and the issues of Wisconsin that we see since the, the data that's been collected. Um, the survey itself um, uses the term the Wisconsin Survey of Household Food Needs, uh, which creates an awkward acronym of <laughs> WSHFN, which is hard to pronounce because it lacks any nouns or lacks any uh, any vowels. Uh, but anyway, this is, I'll just call it the survey. This is a survey that was conducted um, between the end of November and um, early March of this year. So early November of 2012 and, and uh, the early part of this year. Um, and it was sent home with children for their parents to fill out. So the, um, the person filling out the survey was a parent of a child who was enrolled in elementary school and brought the survey home to their parent to fill out and then send back to the school. Um, so the, it was a paper survey. It was available in English and in Spanish. And it actually went home via backpack and came back. <laughs> um, and the data itself was, um, the survey itself was designed uh, by Judy with uh, some input from various experts in, in these areas. And then the data uh, printing and uh, tabulation, all that kind of thing, was done by the UW Survey Center, which is a a well-known national um, um, provider of survey services. So it's, it was a very well-done, uh, um, well-designed survey, well-done well data collection process um, that I think you know meets the sort of standards that you would expect in a in a high-quality research project. It was actually funded by the University of Kentucky Center for Poverty Research through a grant from the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutrition Service, um, and then. Here at Wisconsin, it was administered with the Institute for Research on Poverty. So it, um, you know, this is not um, this, this was not a uh, an effort of a, of a couple of faculty and graduate students. This was a uh, a major effort uh, across the state over this period. Um, about this, the data I'm going to share with you today um, was collected from about 26 schools across 10 counties in the state of Wisconsin. And on average, about 62% of the students in the schools are covered by one of these surveys. Now, remember, some some kids may have siblings, so there might be multiple kids attached to a single survey. Uh, but that's that's really good. I mean, for for a research study to get a uh, a response rate above you know 30 or 40 percent is really really good. And so 60% is is phenomenal, particularly when you when you think about the fact that these relatively low income areas and relatively low income uh, families. These are these are oftentimes the kinds of groups that we have a hard time collecting data with. Um, and I think, you know, if you were part of this project, you should feel some pride in that number, that 62% number, because I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there were extension educators who were in communities, they knew these schools, they knew the people in the school districts, and were really able to help make this feel important and feel like something that people wanted to be part of and um, I think had probably a direct impact on the fact that we had such a strong response rate in this particular project. 
Um, the, I didn't include a lot of data in the brief because I think the, it's not the numbers that are critical, but the overall themes. But um, the first table in there is table one, and that describes a little bit about the um, 20, roughly 2,800 families that are represented in these data. So again, these are filled out by parents about the issues that that family faces, and, and uh, all of the parents responding to the survey had children enrolled in elementary school. So they're all parents of young children. Um, and you can see their, you know, their profile is, um, is relatively poor. These were, these were um, schools in school districts that um, had financial, financially vulnerable profiles. And in about 29% um, of the, the families that responded to the survey um, were defined as, as poor, and only about 45 or less than half would be over 1.85 times the poverty level, which is roughly $44,000 for a family of four. So uh, the majority had incomes uh, adjusted for family size of under 44000 And, um, you know, that's probably not atypical for what we would see from these kinds of schools and school districts right. across the state. Our place? Um, right, that's the only thing that they have here. I don't see a PowerPoint. So if you're, um, if you could just mute, like we're getting some, some background noise, so if uh, you're not currently asking a question, please mute. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, this, uh, surprisingly perhaps, uh, the group we surveyed had a, a nice distribution in terms of uh, education. Um, and even housing level. I mean, the housing, the rate of being a homeowner is pretty similar to the state average. Um, there were quite a few couples, so these were fairly, um, um, from a statistical perspective, we might expect in, in lower income families to see more single parents, and only about 20% of the families were single parent families. Um, but we also see a lot of examples of people facing a uh, financial shock of some kind. So about a third had had an unexpected drop in income. Um, about one in five had lost a job. About a third had their hours or pay reduced. Um, almost one in five had been unemployed for three or more months. A quarter had excessive medical bills, as, as they define them. And um, nearly 40% had a large or unexpected expense. So these are these are families who are, um, you know, experiencing shocks of various kinds. And you can imagine that when these shocks occur, one of the things they can do is adjust their budget for food. And that could result in a higher rate of these families experiencing some form of food insecurity. The um, next table in the brief actually talks about some of these measures of food insecurity and, um, you know, food insecurity is a relatively, for me as a, as somebody who studies family finances, a relatively new idea. So um, I had to learn from Judy a little bit about how this works and how we measure this. And it turns out there is a, a really well-validated scale that USDA has worked on for quite a while now that is included actually at the end of the brief. It's this um, food security scale that um, asks people to identify whether they've had issues that are related to food insecurity, things like, um, you know, not having enough money to buy food and couldn't eat balanced meals and um, questions like that. Um, I think from a financial education or a financial security standpoint, it's great that the food security field actually has a validated set of measures. It's something we've always struggled with in our area. 
but they actually have one in, in the food insecurity area, which is wonderful. So we were able to actually use these questions to look at the incidence of food insecurity. And then there's a categorization of um, the degree to which a family is food secure or insecure, ranging from fully secure, they really have done of the issues that are um, on the scale to um, very low. And you may have many issues related to food insecurity. And in particular, they have child food hardships where um, children are uh, potentially um, not receiving the level of, of um, food that the family self-identifies as being um, you know, a hardship for them. So the, what we see in these data are that overall, um, the sort of very first row, uh, I'm sorry, the very first column of table two, um, about 55% of the families in this uh, data are fully food secure, so they don't identify any issues related to food insecurity. Well, the opposite of that means that now 45% have shown some issues of food insecurity, which is quite high. Um, and then if you look at, for each column going across, just those families who report falling behind on rent, or just those families who said they fall behind on their phone or heat or utility bill, or just those families who say they find it very extremely difficult to meet their expenses, the rate of being fully food secure drops dramatically, down from 55% down to 16 and 22 and 13 respectively. So for families who report some of these, these financial hardships, things, the kinds of things that, that if you're a financial educator, you probably have people come in for and say, I'm having trouble paying the rent or I'm having trouble with my bills. Um, those people are, uh, you know, one in five or one in ten is food secure. But that meaning that four out of five or nine out of ten are have some level of food insecurity. Um, so clearly there's a high correlation between these issues. And um, I guess most alarming is the fact that we see among all the households, and again that first column, only 11% report uh, child food hardship. But that more than doubles as you go across and almost triples as you go to um, the, the, um, the last column of families who report having very extreme difficult paying bills. Um, so this, this suggests that there's a, a pretty high correlation of families who are struggling with issues like paying rent and paying bills and having some food hardship. Now there's a distribution, so not every family who has a um, problem paying bills is also reporting child food hardship, but there many of them are reporting some form of food security, um, including about one in five who are, have very low, and about half who have either low or very low uh, food insecurity. Um, so it definitely suggests there's some, um, some strong correlation there. Um, the, the couple of figures that are included in the brief are informative as well. So here we just look at those various categories of, of food insecurity and look at some behaviors that we think matter, things like having emergency savings or college savings or retirement savings or being unbanked. These are the kinds of things that we've talked about on these calls before as some of the goals of our programs or some of the things that we think help families to be more financially secure and be more creditworthy. And yet when you look at um, the the response of, of those bars and how much shorter essentially they get um, for families who have more food insecurity issues, um, or in the case of least the banks, the higher they get, um, it's clear that families who are facing issues of food hardship are also not able to engage in some of the things that we think are important to help their financial well-being. I'll just highlight the emergency savings uh, number, which drops by, you know, a, 
by two thirds uh, for those who were more food insecure or uh, even those with child hardships. And you know, we've talked before about how important emergency savings is for families to be able to make ends meet when you know both an opportunity comes up, but also when a difficulty comes up, either that uh, a car repair or a drop in income or another kind of expense that the families have to struggle with, and then you know, obviously the Making a food budget is important, uh, but having money to repair a car to be able to get to work to have income coming in is important too. And so families are struggling with these kinds of trade-offs they have to make uh, to make ends meet. The next figure is uh, similar. Uh, here we just look at late payments and then the number of financial hardships. There's actually 10 financial hardships we asked about in the survey. Things like being unbanked, having no retirement savings, having spent down the retirement account to pay for current expenses having no emergency funds, um, using their spending, using their savings for living expenses, borrowing from friends and family, using a payday loan, using an auto title loan, using a pawn loan, and then paying a late fee on a bill. And so out of those 10, the, the people who reported their family was uh, very low food security um, would report on average five of those 10 hardships uh, as, as being one of their issues. So. We see a nice, uh, uh, you know, almost a linear uh, progression there from the food secure to the very low uh, food secure of uh, almost a, a gain of one or more hardship for each level of food insecurity that families face. Um, so again, a strong correlation between the financial issues and the food insecurity issues. All right, so that's a relatively depressing data, so I don't want to end there. I want to try to try to talk a little bit about um, what the implications might be for all this, and then I'll open it up for um, Judy's comments and for the discussion from the from educators as well. Um, so I want to leave you with a, a, a few thoughts. I mean, one is that um, we need to think about ways to better integrate um, the food insecurity or food security issues with financial security. And for example, I can imagine educators doing food needs assessments as part of financial education or doing financial assessments as part of um, food-related or household family food-related education programs. So more ways to think about integrating these two these two fields in, in, in programming. Um, you know, and this might involve financial educators and nutrition educators working together on projects or programs that intersect and maybe market each other's work, whether it's cross-marketing workshops or um, encouraging delivery, or encouraging enrollment in one program as part of another workshop, that kind of thing. Um, we might also imagine more ways to integrate referrals to SNAP and FoodShare into the financial education program or other programming that uh, family financial education experts are working on across the state. And, you know, I think we all know about SNAP and FoodShare, but how affirmatively we try to identify issues of food hardship and make sure that families are aware that this is something that they might qualify for and that might help them make ends meet. It might have a direct effect on their financial bottom line. Um, we also oftentimes talk about budgeting and financial counseling and different avenues or, or venues where we might want to provide financial education and counseling and, and coaching services. And sometimes we've talked about head start, we've talked about tax time. Um, you know, nutrition programs might be another way to, to get in front of families who are facing financial shocks, who are financing, facing financial vulnerabilities, 
And so it might be a good way to integrate, um, again, whether it's referrals or affirmatively uh, marketing and doing outreach within those programs. Um, another key thing I think this project highlights is the role of schools, schools and teachers, and um, they're sort of on the front line of, of, the, of the issues that children are facing as their parents face financial shocks and have to struggle with issues of food insecurity, and how programming can be more directly uh, complementary to the work that schools are doing, or even augment the work that schools are doing around both um, food insecurity as well as financial insecurity. And I know a lot of schools have not. They've probably done more on the food insecurity side than they have on the financial insecurity side, so there might be some ways to think about that. Um, and then I think there's, there's perhaps not as much of a direct programming or education angle to the results that we see here, but how do we think about using these results to talk to community leaders, to talk to families, to talk to school administrators about the coincidence of financial and food issues for children and, and how this might affect not only the issues of a school or of a teacher, but of the ability of kids to be at school and ready to learn and being able to to really learn and and develop their own economic ability to be able to contribute to the community development efforts or the, the economic impact of the area. So it's a it's a bigger, more policy-oriented issue, but I think you know it's important for schools and for policymakers to understand that the issues of financial insecurity and food insecurity are not um, unrelated both to each other and to the greater economic development of a community. And sort of casting our work in that light might be an important angle as well. Um, and there's probably lots more we could talk about just in terms of how the campus-county collaboration works and, um, you know, interacting with schools and educators, um, the role of nutrition educators and those kinds of things. But I will, uh, I will sort of leave that for the larger discussion. Um, I'll pause there and I'll, I'll let Judy chime in if there's anything that I uh, got wrong or if there's other clarity that she wants to put around this and otherwise we'll just open it up for broader discussion. So thanks. I think that was um, a terrific, terrific summary and no, I don't think you misstated anything. I think, I think for me being involved in this project, um, I'd really reiterate what Michael said that it was, um, first of all, just as a research project, I think it was a terrific example about how extension can really be involved in some high quality and highly policy relevant research. Um, you know, this was, this research was funded through a competitive national process where they were looking at a variety of studies to address child, you know, to understand and address child hunger and that um, our extension system could be recognized as a, a, a strong player in doing that kind of research is terrific. Um, I think like, you know, like, like Michael said, one of the really unique things about this study is that the, kind of combining these two fields that, as surprising as it is, really don't tend to get looked at together. And what comes through really clearly from these results is that food insecurity is really embedded within this broader configuration of kind of financial risk factors and then financial responses to hardship. Um, so just kind of understanding those relationships better, I think, is, is really interesting. And I'll, I'll just say the one, one factor that isn't in this brief, but that I was really blown away by is when we look at the households that have um, child food hardship, which is really at the end of the continuum, so families that are not only struggling to meet needs, but it's actually directly impacting how much food their kids get, um, 
if you look at kind of risky financial behaviors among that set of households, fully half of them were were either using payday loans, pawn loans, or car title loans. So, you know, we're looking at financial hardships going hand-in-hand with some other behaviors that we really know can be um, financially detrimental. And I think um, just thinking about what it means to have this whole configuration of hardships and risky behavior across domains really um, sheds a lot of light on what's going on. So I'd love to hear about just any reactions or questions from folks out there. Just remember, if you did meet your phone, to unmute before you chime in. Anybody on the line today? I knew you were going to ask that. I, there's one person on the line, at least. Oh, there's two of us. And number three, but I have nothing to add yet. Number four. You know, I actually, I thought the data was interesting, and I was thinking of um, one project that I thought we could maybe do more coordination with, and that's the Money Smart in Head Start with nutrition education that's done through the WNEP program because WNEP does work with a lot of Head Start programs. And it probably is happening in the counties that already have the money with Head Start, but I think it could be in even more counties. This is Carol. Um, I'm thinking the same thing that I think we have some of that going on with WNEP, but I think it's, this is a good reminder the, that we should have that conversation and see if we can move it forward any any more than it already is, too. Is anybody who's on the call um, part of the team that was engaged in the survey administration? I will say that, you know, we had largely folks who, I, who, in terms of engaging with the project, who tended to approach this from largely a food security interest rather than a financial behaviors interest. So I think um, when folks who, um, who are directly involved with collecting the data looked at what we learned, a lot of the interest was, interest was really around documenting what's happening on the food security side and perhaps less in terms of where they themselves are coming from in their programming focus around these financial connections. But at the same time, I think some of the most powerful information that came out of the project is, in fact, the the way these are two, you know, sort of mutually embedded issues. So I think, I th- I think you know, broadening the conversation beyond um, the WNEP side, which is where we had a lot of uh, involvement in the survey to a broader group, can be helpful. Hi, this is Karen in Brown County. Um, hi. And Judy, I know you're aware of the, the five-year um, surveys that we do here that uses the USDA food security survey, and then we have local questions. Mm-hmm. And I thought it might, and we, we were not going to do it this year, but actually United Way came and said we need you to do it. And so we're getting, we're in the process of 
starting uh, the surveys um, the first week in November. Of course, we do this with the professional social work program at, at the university. But I thought relating to what we're talking about here, last time we did the survey in 2009, we did ask about um, people, you know, about a question about resources that would help them get enough money for food. And these were all done at food pantries. And um, in 2009, 40% um, of the respondents, and that was of 713 people, said that learning how to budget their money would help them. And that's up 4% from 2004. Um, I just thought you'd find that interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on one hand, these connections are, are kind of, Obvious, but at the same time, when you see numbers like that that are that are so large, um, it it does start to kind of point to some potential areas areas for leverage. Um, you know, I mean, one of the, the interesting things in these data, I thought, in, you know, in terms of what goes along with food insecurity on the financial side, was both the idea of um, you know, income shocks and expenditure shocks seeming really important. So, on the one hand the people with higher levels of food insecurity are telling us that not only are they low income, but above and beyond that, something happens. They either had an unexpected loss in income, they you know, they, they lost their job unexpectedly, they had an extended period of unemployment, and it's it's kind of that shock in addition to just being in a low income group that really mattered. And then the other the other side of it that was particularly interesting was what we called expenditure shock. So people who are telling us again above and beyond being low income, they had large unexpected medical bills or other um, you know, large unexpected expenses, um, and it was those expenditure shocks, actually, that were linked in particular to child-specific you know, child food hardships. So, I mean, it, it, it does lead to questions in part of whether budgeting can make a difference and also you know, going beyond individual budgeting, thinking about ways of, um, of stabilizing cash flow and expenditure patterns you know, to, to, um, to get around some of these shocks and their harmful effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we were concerned initially about asking questions, you know, about if helping to ma learning how to manage money would help them because it seemed like it could be judgmental. Um, but there weren't any issues with asking the questions. And um, along this same line, um, we added a couple questions about payday services, and we learned that 23% of people use payday loan and 7% used rent-to-own, and 48% borrowed money from a friend. So I don't know where the resources come from to do um, education on financial literacy. I mean, I know our family living educator is pretty maxed out. <laughs> um, but I guess I'm just underscoring what you're saying, is that there is really a great need, and that not only that, people seem to be open to it. Of course, they can be open to it, and then to have people actually come to educational programming is a whole nother um, hurdle that, you know, we have to jump through. But I know that a couple of our pantries are um, more and more interested in setting up resource centers to do education there. Um, our large pantry is, is interested in that, but we would need the resources to be able to conduct the education. So... What do you suggest about that? We can find out there's a need and we can underscore it, but how do we make it happen? Michael, I'll turn that one over to you on the resources for the financial education side. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think this is an example of um, the kinds of community partnership projects that we've seen in the past as sort of being really key. It's probably not that an educator is going <laughs> to start a movement in, in their county, um, but they might be the one who facilitates conversation across partners and using that collaborative approach um, where the you know the data might be a conversation starter, but the the issues that are explored are really all part of the conversation across people on the financial side, uh, you know, local community financial institutions, as well as the service provision side, the schools, and uh, you know other policymakers in the community. Um, and I don't know that we know what the solution is, and so part of it really is just having the conversation to make people aware of what the what the you know what the evidence is and what the problems might be. Um, this is Peggy here, and I've just been sitting on my hands. Uh, I know uh, Judy mentioned the Money Smart and Head Start, and then I'm also thinking of our Food Sense newsletter, and maybe there's some opportunities to cross over with those two newsletters, too, with some financial tips in the the um, Food Sense newsletter and, you know, vice versa. And also, I guess I would like to see those newsletters going out not just to select populations, but wouldn't that be great if they went out in the school newsletter as an extra page? And, you know, families may or may not be reading that, but at least it would raise awareness of some resources that are out there maybe to draw people into some individual education or workshops. So just thinking of ideas like that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And what I'm always struck with when I think about these data is really – um, not only, I, mean, I think it's really important to recognize that people are acknowledging that, that they're receptive to help with financial management and so forth. Um, by the same token, I think it's really important when we look at data like this that we don't kind of treat financial, individual financial education as, as you know, sort of in and of itself as necessarily the answer. So yes, clearly these data are saying that these problems go hand in hand and that um, families could certainly benefit by more yeah, knowing better how to manage their money at the same time. I, th I think it's um, just in terms of how, how we talk publicly about the issue, um, that it's not not framing it solely as just uh, people need to manage their resources better, but understanding um, how deeply embedded food insecurity is in these other financial hardships that are really indicative of levels of financial strain that are you know, in some cases have deeper roots than simply not knowing how to, you know, how to, how to juggle all your bills optimally. And I think, I think how to find that balance in discussing this and figure out what we do and don't have to offer is important as well. Judy, just to clarify, this is Karen. Um, that was one parameter among many. So it's never been talked about as an isolated strategy. Right. Oh, I know. I mean, I mean, I think it's, it's, um, and, you know, and there's certainly some angles that we have more leverage on than others. And I know in your community, you do a lot of, you know, systems-based work as well. This is Martha from Waukesha County. And, um, I'm kind of, kind of new this year in the financial, um, financial education and family living. Um, and I come from the um, the nutritional background, and a lot of the families that I worked with um, while I was teaching, they always um, asked if there could be a component to the financial um, capabilities 
And, you know, at the time, you know, coming from WNEP, uh, our guidelines were very um, limited as to how much we could teach in that. And uh, and now being on the other side of it, uh, it's, it's really kind of opened a, a lot of um, opportunities. And at the same time, you know, I'm... I'm just, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm waiting, anticipating this opportunity to go out there and teach um, this this end of it. But if there are a lot of families, there is a huge need. It's overwhelming, and many of them have come up to me and said, "Oh, when are you going to start? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that?" And we really need this education. We really need to know how to manage our money and how to save. And um, and they are seeking for that opportunity here in Waukesha. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's again, it's great, I think, when families are, are receptive, so that's a wonderful opportunity in terms of us just being able to cross program areas. Um, I'll just point to one other interesting thing that came out of these data that didn't make it into this brief, but um, one of the things we were looking at was, was just participation in food assistance programs and whether you know, people's levels of food hardship made them more likely to participate in assistance programs and then whether people with higher levels of kind of other indications of, of financial strain were more likely to participate in food assistance programs. And what, what I thought was fascinating is that, is that people who acknowledged themselves as having food problems, you know, food insecurity problems, tended to be much more likely to use things like food stamps, you know, like, like SNAP and um, school meal programs and summer meals when they were eligible. But people who were um, reporting all sorts of other financial strains but not food insecurity per se, were much like, less likely to participate in those programs. So one of the interesting takeaways for me was, was to help people understand the range of resources that are out there and, and that for many people with financial strain but not necessarily in themselves understanding it as food stress, there's potentially untapped resources in food assistance programs, which have um, certainly the potential to kind of shift how your resources are available. Um, so that's just you know, one, one example of how, how, how these worlds kind of connect in ways that even, even families don't necessarily recognize. I want to uh, welcome the uh, food security perspective, too, for, for anybody who, anybody else who might come from a nutrition perspective and uh, maybe in the past didn't have the flexibility to talk about financial issues, so I think it's great to have that conversation with our team, and um, we're glad you're here. I will say that, you know, this project was funded with an external grant that is finished, but we have some... Um, potential, it's not entirely clear at the moment, but there's the possibility that in the spring we'll be able to support some additional counties that may be interested in working with schools um, to use the survey to collect similar kinds of data. So what I have been collecting is kind of an interest list among folks who think they may be interested so that if we get the supports in place, um, we can follow up on that. So if you look at these data and think there would be something of interest in your own county and you um, want to be on the uh, the contact list for that, by all means, shoot me an email. I don't want to end prematurely. If anybody has any 
additional comments or thoughts before we up for the day. Well, I, um, I thank you all. Again, I want to remind folks that our next call will be back on the regular uh, third Monday edition. Again, we'll talk about student loans. Um, then we'll take a little break over the holiday, um, take off December, and then come back in the spring, or actually winter. Um, but So next time we'll talk about financial education. Again, remember, these calls are recorded, so if you um, want to follow up on something, the recording should be posted in the next few days, or if for somebody else. It's all going to be posted at the FYI website I mentioned earlier. Um, so I want to especially thank Judy for uh, all the work she did on this project, uh, and thank you all for listening in today.